State of the Industry podcast. This episode is brought to you by KP Movement Education, your source for health and movement education and coaching. Whether you are a health or fitness professional, a fitness consumer, or perhaps a passive bystander, KP believes that everyone deserves the right to pain-free movement. That's why their memberships and services are designed to educate, empower, and inspire you to create a culture of movement for yourself and those around you. With two membership options, you'll find education surrounding developing at-home training programs for yourself or for others, mental health and exercise, lifestyle medicine, and much, much more. Check it out at kineticperformance.ca backslash memberships. That's kineticperformance.ca backslash memberships. Hey, FitFam, welcome back to the State of the Industry podcast. I am your host, Adam Yangsma. In this episode, we bring you part two of my conversation with Michel Dalcor. Michel is the CEO of the IOM or the Institute of Motion. He is the inventor of the Viper Pro and the co-founder of PTA Global. He has presented all over the world and I have had the pleasure of hearing him speak on multiple occasions. And really the motto of the IOM is stay curious and I have really taken that to heart and that is one of the driving forces of what I do and why we have this podcast is because I'm constantly wanting answers to questions that I have and wanting to bring all this information to you. And so if you haven't heard part number one of my conversation with Michel, I suggest that you go back and listen to the previous episode. But either way, here is part number two. Enjoy. Welcome back, Michelle. Really excited for this part number two. So before we get into 4Q, because we kind of finished off talking about that, um, I just wanted, I was thinking a little bit earlier, actually, before we had our call, and I was thinking about training principles. Yeah. And I'm thinking about when you look at different certifications, they have different training principles and, and often the the main ones are very similar. You got specificity, progressive overload. You've got all the stuff. Some of them have uh, structural tolerance. I wonder if variability should now be one of those training principles when you're thinking about longevity and when you're thinking about what most clients who the average personal trainer works with is general population, not an athlete, not uh, necessarily a rehabilitation client, but they need the variability for this for specificity because variability, as you mentioned in part number one, is life. Like that is what life is. And so having that, I think, of a, as a training principle might be useful. Yeah, no, I, we have a chapter in our course called variability is specificity, right? And which is an oxymoron, but it is. <laughs> variability yeah. is, is specifically life, right? Yeah. I mean, it is specifically life. That yeah. is very, like play any contact sport, play any racket sport. I mean, you, you talked about how you love to play a variety I mean, if we videotape you doing all those things, it is variable. Yeah. Uh, it is not chaos, but it is variable. Yeah. And to understand that that is what underscores the remodeling of our body, what underscores health markers to a certain degree, to a large degree. Um, yeah, that to us, we're a health and human performance company. Yeah. 
And so what we look at is we look at health and human performance. Yeah. Right. And so we look at, all right, if, if I'm loading and I'm doing certain things from a, from a performance standpoint, does that also equal health and sustainability? Yeah. And if the answer is no, well, that's okay as long as we know it, because then we're overreaching, right? So, uh, you know, think of the female population that live in Boulder, Colorado. So if I'm an endurance athlete, and this happens to males too, but it's more, it's more demonstrative in the female uh, gender, which is this idea that I'm doing these ultra distance, high demand, high volume uh, stress bouts. Uh, of either triathlon or running. And, and so I'm pushing the volume, pushing the volume, pushing my training. And then as a result, that stress uh, starts to uh, conflict or interfere with the natural functions or the undulations of my chemistry, i.e. Yeah. the menstrual cycle, right? And so now I'm amenorrheic. And so I'm world-class fit, right? I'm on the podiums. But if I haven't had my period in, in three years, then I'm not healthy. Yeah. So there is a disconnect between, you know, performance and health. Yeah. And again, it, it affects males all the time as well. But that to me is such a demonstrative um, kind of example uh, yeah. because now I'm missing some of those things. Another example could be, you know, high intensity exercise is great at eliciting all sorts of performance markers and, you know, certain things in relation to health too. Uh, but one of the things that it does do is increase acidosis. It increases... Uh, myokines like uh, interleukin-6 and inter mm -hmm. interleukin-6 is immunosuppressant. Yeah. So then what, right? So then am I doing my dose response of high intensity enough that I'm blunting my immune response? And if so, how does that affect my longevity? Right. And so yep. we, these are the types of questions that we ponder all the time. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. So going along with that, when you um, or your team, when you come across a, a, a new concept, a new, I guess, way of thinking. Like you, you guys are pretty forward thinking. You're pretty ahead of the curve in a lot of the what you're doing. When you read a journal article, you know, somebody else says something, maybe you went to a conference session. What do you do when you, when you get that information? What's kind of your process with kind of hearing about it and then actually putting that into practice, either in a course that you're designing or a conference session or something like that? Uh, yeah, I think there's a couple things. First, uh, when in our process, we've got a bunch of academics on our on our staff. Uh, so we have four PhDs uh, that are, and that their job is basically to, you know, cite, to reveal, to make sense of uh, the the research that is out there, the peer-reviewed evidence that is out there, and that's great. And so what when we do is when we look at this couple things we keep an open mind which sometimes is challenging right because we're fraught with our own ideologies and our own biases of things yeah we try to keep an open mind and then we our tagline is stay curious right so knowing who we are like we're not and we're not a research company we are a, an applied health and human performance company which means that we apply things yeah and so in taking that theory and then in, to your point how do we convert it well we keep an open mind, we stay curious, but then we look for what sort of things can we bring about? We see ourselves as almost like environmental engineers, right? We yeah. think environment dictates behavior. And that could be at the level of the cell, that could be me consciously behaving in a certain way. Environment dictates behavior. And so, you know, what environments can I elicit to evoke what we know is going to be a certain pattern of behavior, tissue-wise, signaling, 
right? All those things. Yeah. Tissue behaviors are our system behaviors so that we can create an outcome that we want, right? And so that's typically the way we do it. So I'll give you an example. So we looked at, you know, the mechanisms and the, and the research around, you know, core activation and core stability, et cetera. And we looked at the research on, let's say, motor patterning and the function of muscles. And when you look at those things and you look at the fact that muscles themselves are task driven, yeah. right? So you said, you know, the, the body knows best. Well, in a lot of cases, the body does know best. If I try to interfere with conscious means, I slow it down. But if I had you lean back far enough, right, your rectus abdominis would fire independent of what you think. Yeah. Even though we think that the rectus abdominis is a trunk flexor, if you lean back, it would fire. If you lean forward right now, how you are re in relation to gravity, you lean forward, it would not fire. Yeah. It would relax and your rectus spinae would fire. And you'd say, wait a second, everything's backwards because I thought that was supposed to erect the spine, not flex the spine. Yeah. And in reality, all it's doing is decelerating gravity. Yeah. And, but it's, that's not the action of the rectus abdominis until you lay down on your back. And so if muscles are task-driven and we're looking at spinal segmental stability in this example for the core, we're looking at practical evidence or practice, practical and applied solutions to that, right? So we would say, all right, muscles are task-driven and we want deep core stabilization. Well, we know that the task of breathing is not just a muscle thing, but a orchestra of different muscle things. And what forces air out is not the same as what it allows air to rush in, yeah. right? That's exhalation versus inhalation, right? So there are two different series of nerve motor units and, and muscles that do that task. Mm -hmm. All of them are important to spinal segmental stability, right? So instead of just consciously, consciously trying to activate the glutes as a, as a glute bridge, let's say as a warm up, uh, and making assessments on that, like, ah, oh, you can't do that because you can't control it and your hamstrings are cramping. Yeah. You know, a lot of people would, would take that view and that's fine, but that's not our view. Uh, what we might look at is that's cool if you can control it, but what happened? You can't, we always make inferences like, oh, there's lack of motor control. Is there really? Mm -hmm. Right. Cause if I said, Hey, try to contract your, your, you know, your multifidus muscles, which are <laughs> little paraspinal muscles yeah. or your intercostals right now, go, you know, Adam, go ahead and flex those. Yeah. You'd be like, I'm pretty good mover and I can't do that. Yeah. And so then what? Do I make the same assessment of you? Like, oh, you can't control those muscles. Therefore, you're, you know, you do have lack of motor control. Mm -hmm. No, we just gave them the wrong task. And so yeah. what we do is we say, what is the right task? Well, it's a series of breathing out as much as you can. Uh, and then when you think you're done, you keep breathing out because you call upon accessory breathing muscles at that point. Yeah. Conversely, you breathe in. And when you think you're done, you keep going and try to breathe in a little bit more. And that calls upon accessory muscles. And yeah. we know that all of those, there's different muscles, but all of them in aggregate stabilize the trunk. So now we have a solution. Now we go, okay, we know the core, we know the science of the core, we know segmental stability, we know the mechanics of it. And now we know the mechanisms of try to get it done. So now we say, all right, now we know forced inhalation and forced exhalation are ways of deep core stabilization. Okay, so now can we change the position? So now we can, you know, can we vary it, right? So now we're thinking, okay, if I take a golfer in, in the backswing and then in that zone of transformation right here, I get them to either breathe out or in. Mm -hmm. I am going to call upon all those accessory muscles that stabilize my spine and my trunk and my shoulder in that specific position. Well, if that's a golfer and I'm doing that, I'm teaching the body to stabilize at that position. 
which yeah. then recognizes more stability and, and decreased threat. And as soon as I do it, my nervous system, let's say, owns that position now. Yeah. And when it does, I can generate force and get out of the way because as soon as I generate force, there's an impulse of force production, which is you know muscle contraction. And then there's zero threat or very little threat because I've trained it. My muscles can get out of the way, which means clubhead speed can you know approach 120 or whatever I want it to be. Yeah. And so that would be the difference between understanding you know the theory of core stability or breathing and then trying to apply it for folks. Mm-hmm. Right. And so that's kind of what we do is we look at the, 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 the theoretical mechanisms behind it and I'm trying to understand it and then trying to apply solutions to that understanding. Yeah. And we have a team like one, you know, 10 brains are better than one. Right. So yeah. we typically have a team of individuals that bounce ideas off. of. And I would actually recommend this to our fitness industry because a lot of times our fitness industry is fraught with louder arguments and more bravado. Like I'm going to put you down to elevate myself and I would encourage all of us to not do that, right? Share yeah. best practices and keep an open mind that's not like sometimes try to subvert your own ideology. Mm-hmm. And if you can do that, right, which is a mental trick, right? Because it's cognitive dissonance, right? We're not going to go against what we truly believe, right? Yeah. But if you can do that for a time, if you can hold your beliefs at bay for a second and just try to challenge them, yeah, you, I, we will be surprised on where we arrive. Yeah. Um, yeah, I love that. Like surround yourself with smart people, talk to other people, um, even like just observe other coaches, observe, um, researchers or or individuals who are specialists in their field, um, and just kind of listen, read. And yeah, like, I love, as you said, your kind of motto is stay curious. And I tell that like, when I have PTs who come through a certification, I'm like, this is not over. This is, this is foundation. And what you learned is good enough for right now, but you got to continually like every single day trying to get, you know, that 1%, trying to continue to push yourself and and think outside the box and come with an open mind. Right. Um, I think it was Mike Boyle. Once I was listening to a, a session that he did at perform better. And, um, he said he likes smart people. And I was like, yeah, okay. Who doesn't like a smart person? But then he went through what his acronym of SMART is, and it was, you know, they're uh, willing to change their minds. You know, they're, um, yeah, come, yeah, they come with an open mind. I can't remember what all of them were, yeah. but they they ask questions. They they come with an open mind, and and they're willing to change their mind and have their mind changed because with a lot of people, if you think about what you thought you knew even last year, five years ago, ten years ago it's changed drastically from what you originally thought. Like I remember when I started in this industry and uh, you know, I think about four years in, I was actually teaching at a, a university at that time. And what I taught then I would probably slap myself now. Like I would go back and slap myself and be like, what were you thinking? Right. But that's what we knew then. That's what I thought I knew then. And you don't know what you don't know. And you continue to learn. So and we're trying to learn something that's pretty complex, right? Yeah. And it does, it's not, it's not mechanistic in, in the sense that, you know, just because you have different inputs coming in doesn't mean you, you have a different outcome coming out. Like it, yeah. people can survive on eating different, you know, levels of macronutrients and their body figures it out. Yep. Right. People live in hot or cold. Like the body figures things out Yeah. Uh, or tries to at least. 
And it, it may do that in a, in a variety of different ways. Yeah. And that's, that's difficult because if we're trying to say this equals this, well, that's difficult in biology. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So let's get to 4Q. You started to explain it a little bit in part number one. And what I wanted to get to is I was first introduced, as I, as I mentioned, in it's probably four or five years ago at Phylex uh, by Jan, who is uh, one of your partners at uh, IOM and very, very smart man, puts a lot of good stuff out on social media with the Viper, Viper Pro. And he was the first person who introduced me to the 4Q model. It's the first time I saw it. And he walked through just the movement one. So you, you've mentioned that you have a whole bunch of them, but can you just walk through the, the 4Q for movement specifically? And then we'll get into the metabolic one. Sure. So as you said, we have three of them, but at a high, high level, uh, 4Q is basically when you have two continuums that overlap. So mm -hmm. if you've got a, like, let's say a Y axis going this way and an X axis going this way, and you take those continuums and you overlap them, it's going to look like a, a plus sign or a cross if it's distributed a little higher, but there's going to have, there's going to be four quadrants. Mm -hmm. And again, those quadrants may not be equal in terms of size or consideration, but there are four distinct kind of quadrants made when you bisect, you know, two continuums. Yeah. So the idea there is that it allows us to consider variability. Mm -hmm. Right. And so the movement one in your mind's eye, and these are pretty simple in concepts, but it can go deep in terms of, and we can go deep right here. But the idea is it's pretty simple in terms of, I, you know, top level view. Yeah. So the movement one, imagine if you've got an X axis and on, on, on the upper end, you've got what we call loaded. So loaded is any type of external resistance that, you know, that you're introducing to your body. Yeah. Right. And what that does is it amplifies, you know, kind of the natural forces of, 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 of that surround us, right? Yeah. So uh, I may externally load my body with a weight vest or a barbell or a dumbbell or a kettlebell or a band or, a, you know, or a, you know, a prowler or the list goes on and on. So any type yeah. of external resistance that I apply to my body, um, that, that's what we call, we call loading. Yeah. On the other end, right, on the lower end of that y-axis, we would say it's, it's what's called unloaded. Now, unloaded is our body weight uh, in its environment, right? So that could be our body weight in gravity ground reaction. That are, it could be our body weight in water, right? But those are the natural forces of, of life. Yeah. And so if we introduce our bodies to that, it's body weight. Mm -hmm. So now you've got loaded and you've got body weight or unloaded. And by unloaded, we don't mean there's no force anymore. It just means there's no additional amplified force with any external means. Yeah. It's just our unloaded body, right? If that makes sense. So that's yeah. the kind of the y-axis going up now. The x-axis going left to right, on the left-hand side, you've got a linear pattern. We're going to call that sagittal, right? So if you're sagittal playing, you're in that linear bucket mm -hmm. because most of what we do, right? Yeah. And then on the other side of that continuum, we have what's called multiplanar, right? Which is two or more planes of motion, which should be of no, um, you know, it shouldn't be confusing to the audience. So when you now overlap these two things, you have four quadrants. Yeah. So in essence, you have an upper left quadrant. So let's go through upper would be loaded. So that's external load. And then left would be loaded, loaded linear. Mm -hmm. So an example of a loaded linear is, basically an external load in the sagittal plane, right? When our trunk and our limbs are 
are mostly going in the sagittal plane. Yeah. And let's not overthink it th at this point. So a, I'm going to use, use the example of a chest exercise. So a chest loaded linear would be bench press for mm -hmm. this example, right? There could be many, many more, but that would, and then a back squat, a deadlift, uh, most bodybuilder exercises are going to be loaded linear. No yeah. problem. Right. We're going to talk about the advantages of that in a second. So there's all those examples for the chest. It's a, a, a bench press. If I go down and I look at the bottom left quadrant, so now I'm unloaded of any external means. So it's my body weight and it's linear. So it's in the sagittal plane. Well, I push up, right? So, and these are basic examples. Yeah. So that would be an example of a chest exercise that's body weight driven, that's sagittal dominant, right? Mm -hmm. And in the sense that my trunk is moving in the sagittal plane. If I move over to the bottom right quadrant, that's unloaded multiplanar training, right? So UMT. An example of that would be my body weight uh, in a multiplanar environment. If I'm chest, then I'm doing some sort of maybe, you know, a Spider-Man or a gecko push-up or, you know, a, a push-up with rotation or something that's going to elicit, you know, a different response of more than just one plane of motion. Mm -hmm. And then the last one, the upper right is loaded multiplanar. So an example there might be, I'm standing up, I got a, a cable that is shoulder height and I'm doing a rotational cable chest press. Yeah. So now it's not only chest, but I'm, my whole body is rotating my thigh or my pelvis and my foot has to accommodate the transverse plane as well as pushing this thing forward. Yeah. So if we look at that, if, if that's clear to the listener, we've got four quadrants, right? Loaded and unloaded, linear or multiplanar. And we've got an example of one body part in each of those quadrants. Now, instead of saying, you know, bench press sucks or bench press is best, which is the ideological dogmatic, you know, kind of sometimes the, the conversations that emerge. Yeah. What we would rather suggest is this, Hey, it elicits a response in the body. Yeah. What is that response? And do you want that for yourself or your client? If yes, well then consider it. If no, well then don't consider it. Pretty simple, right? Yeah. So a bench press, you could say, well, you know, it's going to be hard on the shoulder and it's well, fine. But what does the bench press do? Well, if you can accommodate good scapulohumeral rhythm, if you get good arthrokinematics of the shoulder, uh, and if you can accommodate that pattern and, you know, that's not all you do, uh, one thing that it does afford is the ability to go heavier. Yeah. And when we go heavier, based on Henneman's size principle, you go from type one fibers to type two A and type two A B and type two X fibers because of the load, because it's linear. Like if it was more multiplanar, you have to reduce load, which may not access as many of those fibers unless you're moving it at speed. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's other ways of doing it, but this is one in which it can elicit type two fibers. Well, type two fibers are are prone to hypertrophy, so you get a greater cross-sectional area in that muscle. Well, a couple things happen. A greater cross-sectional area uh, could mean more force potential, like you can produce more force potentially. That's a cool thing if you want it. Uh, gr greater cross-sectional area for perhaps, you know, both genders, but certainly men, uh, could be an aesthetic thing. Like I want a bigger chest, so I look better. And I want to look better naked. Great, yeah. if that's what you want and you value that and that's high, of high value to you, then if you value that, I value that, no judgments. Yeah. And a lot of times we judge that, oh, it's vain or you shouldn't do that, it's more functional, whatever. Like if you grew up chubby and you know you always, and finally you want to look good, then that's your deal. Like no judgment on that at all. Yeah. And so that may be one way in which to get there.
Okay, no problem. So that's the loaded linear. That's a benefit. Is there consequences? Well, sure. Uh, and we could talk about those if we want as well. The unloaded linear uh, could be a, a, a push-up. So what is the benefit there? Well, equally to the chest, it, it'll work the chest musculature for the same reasons. I can maybe do it a little faster and more explosive. I can regress the pattern. But one thing that it does do is it's more closed chain, meaning my body is the mass that's moving, not my hands. So it's my yeah. body moving in a way towards and away from my hands. So it requires a lot more tonic-based stability mechanisms within the trunk, within the scapulothoracic region, within the glenohumeral region. There's more stability required. So, all right, there's a benefit to stability and shoulder mechanics and trunk mechanics. Okay, cool. There's a benefit. The gecko or the Spider-Man push-up is the same, but it's more... It's, it's more omnidirectional, right? So if you look at the research on the shoulder joint and they say mechanically, the shoulder recognizes 16,000 different positions in space. Mm -hmm. I don't know who counts these things, but you know, <laughs> really PhD PTs do this, right? Yeah. Uh, and so, okay, if that's true, how many, tr how many, how many of those uh, uh, positions in the gym and traditional training do we expose our body to? And the answer would probably be not that many because we do our front raises and we do our shoulder. And in the classic vernacular of strength training, we don't do a lot of those 16,000 different positions. We may you know, have 20 of them. Yeah. And so the, the value here is, okay, my unloaded multiplanar exercise for my chest, if you will, is my you know, crawling, rotational, whatever push-up. I'm now getting more of my thorax into my scapula and my scapula into my humerus more positions in my shoulder yeah. to create more tonicity and more type one motor control and still working my chest. So if the name of the game is I want to do my bench press for longer and I want to have a career in doing that and not fizzle out, maybe I might want to do that unloaded multiplanar pushup. Why? Helps my shoulders. Yeah. Right. It bulletproofs my shoulders to do these other things. Great. And then the rotational standing one, right, which is the LMT, the loaded multiplanar. Yeah. There's foot action, the control, there's trunk rotation, right? There's still chest girdle, there's shoulder mechanics that are now more than in just the, the frontal plane. I'm actually getting a little bit more of my chest into the opposite side, external obliques, because that's sling, because I'm rotating. Yeah. So I'm tying the shoulder to the opposite hip, which is great for life, great for throwing in sport, great for mechanics, and great for integration. Maybe great for calorie burn, because I'm burning more calories because the utilization of energy is higher because I'm getting more muscle mass going, mm. whatever. So the point being here is that each of these quadrants offers a benefit. Yeah. The point now is not whether that is bad or good, like, oh, no, functional, terrible, or you know, linear, terrible, because it's not functional. To, to us, we don't engage in those types of discussions because to us, it's always, there's an input. Yeah. There is an input in each one of those. There's a benefit and there's going to be an ad adaptive process in each one of those methodologies. Mm -hmm. You know, how do we undulate that? How do we modulate and kind of consider those things? That's the art of program design. Yeah. But what we never do is throw out any of those considerations. Mm -hmm. Right. We may, when we, when we stratify risk for an individual, uh, you know, um, you know, that person has a shoulder impingement syndrome. Well, we're not going to do this particular exercise because it can't afford the rotation. Whatever. So yeah. we might go through those patterns and assess whether that is good for the individual. 
Yeah. But as a general rule, we're not going to just throw it out because of an ideology, uh, an ideological viewpoint. Yeah. And I love what you said about, you know, whatever the, the goal is or the outcome that you're looking for that client wants, that's probably going to change where you put, like you kind of move almost the buckets around a little bit. You change which ones they want filled, right? So yeah, if you have somebody comes in and they want to look large and that's yeah. their main goal is, as you said, that, that vanity uh, outcome, that aesthetic outcome, well, that's great. And so that's probably going to be the bucket where you're going to put most of your effort, but it doesn't mean you ignore the other three, right? We still have to make sure that we have all of that. 100%. We would call them movement vitamins, right? So you got your movement vitamins, right? Yeah. And, and if it, we're not suggesting that in these four quadrants, it's 25% each quadrant. Yeah. If you're a bodybuilder, I guarantee you, you'll want a high dose of loaded linear stuff. Yeah. Guaranteed. And you should. Right. But if that's all you do, the question for you and I is how do bodybuilders age? And as a cohort, where do they injure themselves? Because, yeah. you know, kind of success and failure leaves clues. Right. So if I'm failing at, you know, tendonitis, shoulder impingement, these are repetitive stress injuries. Mm -hmm. Right. So how do you mitigate that? You bulletproof the body. Yeah. And I remember we were talking to the, you know, you know, a group that was uh, with um, Phil Heath, you know, Phil, Phil Heath, bodybuilder. Yep. And uh, he, I don't think he's the reigning Mr. Olympia, but he's, you know, super successful at the highest level bodybuilder. And what was cool about the team the surrounding Phil Heath is that he himself was looking at longevity and he himself and his camp was looking at the 4Q in the sense that, hey, how can we actually think about this for Phil's longevity? Like, congratulations, man. If he loves to do bodybuilding and wants to do it, you know, in, you know, as he rides into the sunset, that is awesome for him. Mm -hmm. And you know, as long as he wants to do it, the ability to do it is empowering. Yeah. So, you know, good on him for considering those things. So, you know, whoever it is, they're, if they're a bodybuilder, they're going to have a high uh, dosage of that quadrant. But mm -hmm. to your point, if they ignore the other ones, it's, I wouldn't say it's a ticking time bomb, but they're increasing the risk of potential injury. Yeah. And so what you would do is say, okay, prophylactically, we're going to put these other little vitamins in just to keep it bulletproof to do what you love to do. Yeah. So it might be a, you know, I don't know what the percentages would be, but it might be a, you know, Hey, 85% in the LLT quadrant and yeah. then distributing the other two, three quadrants for the other, you know, 15 or 20%, whatever. It yeah. Is. yeah. Yeah. And going back to like the benefits, cause we'll talk about like, I think we talked about some of the drawbacks of sticking in only one quadrant. Um, but when we're talking about things like the, the like specifically multi-planar, whether it is a body weight or whether it's loaded, uh, looking at sequencing, because you mentioned that in the, the, um, the linear uh, unloaded, so like something like a push-up, your body, and now you're in closed chain, your body has to work a lot more on stability. And then once you start to add another plane of motion, your body has to think a lot more about sequencing of muscles and movements. And I think sequencing is one of those big pieces that a lot of people miss when, they, when they're thinking about variability. It's the actual sequen sequencing of these muscles and when, when are things turning on, how are things turning on, and understanding that every single time it does that or you try to do the same movement, it's always different with regards to the pathways and the amount of sequencing, the timing of sequencing. Um, but allowing your body to expand that, 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 I guess, threshold of movement that you have 
to enable you to adjust to different variables. So we talked about ice earlier and walking on ice, but like slipping on ice, you don't realize it's there. You're walking down the street and all of a sudden your leg goes out. Does your body have the ability, the sequencing, the strength and the tolerance in those tissues to be able to deal with that? Or are you going to either fall or are you going to tear a muscle, an adductor, blow a hip, something like that in response to that? So I like, I like that, um, the way that you put that for Q. And that's the idea, like like multiplanar, well, linear too, but linear would be typically more simple uh, neurologically. And that might be to our advantage. We're like, we're going to get Grandma Jones to do a simple task before she does a complex task. Pretty yeah. smart. Yeah. Right. But the idea is, you know, if we can, you know, from a tissue perspective, but a motor perspective, allow the matriculation of that thought to, to, to flow within the four quadrants then we're going to consider some other things. Yeah. And we would say that it's simple. It's not supposed to solve every problem, but what it is is a simple first triage of consideration. Yeah. Because any exercise that's ever been done is somewhere in those four queue somewhere. Yeah. Yep. 100%. Right? And if we can just say, okay, am I, am I looking at my program from a distance? And if I do, if I, if I'm stuck all in one quadrant, my next question is, do I want to be? And the answer is, yeah, that's good. That's confirmation. Great. Um, if it's not, then how do I rejig it so that it makes more sense to me? Or yeah. I could have periodization. Now, many general clients never have periodization. I get it. Uh, and they don't need it. They just need something to keep them engaged and keep them moving forward along the adaptation pathway yeah. um, in ways that they want. So, you know, the 4Q really gives us structured variability considerations. Yeah, gives you that that platform, that framework to be able to think about movement in, in a way that you maybe, because a lot of trainers who come in, just think about, oh, I have to memorize all these exercises. But if you can put it into a framework and just be like, okay, so I've got these types of tools that I can use, and I've got these quadrants that I can be able to, you know, either move it linearly or, or multiplanar, I can load it or unload it. I can have any type of client in there and be able to get the adaptation that I'm seeking in that training program and basically put them in the best position to not be injured and, and have success. I like, I like the way you frame that. I mean, it really is a way to categorize a lot of noise mm -hmm. um, that is in the space. Yeah. So I think it's also important for uh, the, the listeners to understand as well that you can have more, um, you know, in quotations, load or more force in a linear unloaded activity than you do in something that is loaded. So it's not a, necessarily a force thing. It's an external load thing. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's a great clarifying point is that when we say loaded to unloaded, we're only talking about referencing external load yeah. to the body, but we don't, we're not talking at all about force. So let me give yeah. an example. If I was to do depth jumps off of a block, whatever it is, like let's say a you know six inch or well, you know twenty centimeter block, yeah, and I'm landing on one leg decelerating, you know the amount of force that's going through my system is what it is, right? It might it, it'll be a multi a multiple of my body weight for sure. Yeah. Uh, so that would be considered unloaded, but mm -hmm. you know the the difference is it's actually. It's unloaded, but it's a, in a different space within those quadrants. And this is a little bit more advanced, but it's still unloaded, right? Yeah. The purpose of this discussion, it's unloaded. A, a five pound back squat would be considered loaded. 
Yeah. Now, nobody out there would argue that a five pound back squat is more load to the body than a single leg depth jump deceleration. Yeah. So yes, that point is awesome to clarify. We are talking nothing about force. We are only talking about a reference point to external load to our bodies, right? And what it does do, again, as a first triage, is it allows us to consider, you know, weights in the gym or free weights or bands or versus the body weight athlete, which is, you know, whether it's animal flow, whether it's uh, parkour, whether it's gymnastics or any of the human flags or anything of the body weight athlete that is out there. That's awesome. Yeah. And those typically fit in the body weight category, which is our unloaded category. Mm -hmm. And they typically all require more joint stability because you are your own loading mechanism at that point. Yeah. So therefore you got to stabilize, right? It's like relative strength versus max strength. Yeah. Relative strength is you, right? So a rock climber is going to have more joint stability than me going into the gym and doing a lot of pull downs every 10th day. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, um, it's, it's a great way to simplify the way of thinking, but also allow you to expand out from maybe the constructs that you have, you have already. So I, I really want to get into this because as I said, I, I listened to a podcast of yours and it ended with you starting to talk about metabolic flexibility. And this is like, and you actually, he prefaced it so well and it got me so excited and then it had to end and uh you were like this is you know people are going to be talking about this pardon it's cliffhanger. it might have been on purpose i add the cliffhanger it's like <laughs> it's like the uh the, the movies that have the cliffhanger at the end yeah we're gonna say that oh no i can say that. <laughs> yeah yeah it was it was fantastic because i was like oh this is this is you know uh, you know, we look at, you talked about fashion and, and fitness having trends and, and it's all driven by trends. And, you know, we've seen everything from uh, BOSU balls and stability balls and, uh, you know, CrossFit, I guess, you know, maybe you could call that a trend um, or maybe just a different way or type of training. You've had a whole bunch of different things. And then you're like, yeah, this is a trend of the future. Like if you haven't heard about this or you're they're not, not talking about this right now, they're going to be talking about this, um, you know, in the next few years and it's going to be a big thing. Can you give us what is metabolic flexibility? And then can you uh, kind of bring it into that four quadrant model for us? Yeah, I can. Uh, so metabolic flexibility is a term that's used in research. Another way of saying that we might, that we might exchange right now relative to what we're talking about is metabolic variability, mm -hmm. right? But let's, let's stick to metabolic flexibility for now. It's really how flexible can a person be, can, a, can an organism be at switching from one fuel source to the next with ease. Now, the complexities of metabolism are many. Uh, they involve a bunch of chemistry, right? Chemical reactions. They involve a bunch of catalyzing agents within different steps of energy system utility. Mm -hmm. They involve rate limiting steps. They involve some fatigue byproducts that are created that, you know, inhibit some certain things. So there's all these complexities, but to simplify it for a second, if you and I had a car, we were a car, let's say that ran on predominantly three fuel sources, right? We would want to express those fuel sources from time to time, all of them, right? In order to be healthy, in order to run well, we'd have to express all of those fuel sources mm -hmm. to be basically bulletproof. We talked about this idea of variability, like, Remember the loss of adaptability equals functional impairment, which leads to death, right? Yeah. So the loss of adaptability means you're real good at one substrate or one pathway, 
may not be so good at the other pathway. And so metabolic flexibility speaks to this. It speaks to the ability for our bodies to shift from one fuel source to the next with ease. Now, the listener out there could be thinking, well, that seems pretty logical and that seems pretty inherent within the body. Why wouldn't the body do it normally anyway? Mm -hmm. right? Just as a natural function of just, you know, mechanisms of, of an organization of biology. And it does to a certain point, but it's how we train also influences that, mm -hmm. right? So if we're now, I mean, obviously the trend of the day is high intensity. Yeah. And what, what they call it is HIT, which is high intensity interval training. As we're about to see, I, I'm going to put that in question. Like, is it really <laughs> HIT training that we're doing? Um, I wouldn't dispute that it's high intensity, but the interval is predicated on the idea that there is a work to rest ratio that makes sense to recover. Yeah. Right. And in HIIT training protocols right now in today's gym or today's fitness arena, uh, I, I would argue that there's not a lot of recovery that what's taking, you know, what's, what's being held hostage is recovery, right? That they're just yeah. shortening recovery bouts which is fine, but it's really not hit training after a while. Um, and so the idea of using different substrates uh, and the ease with which we can use different substrates, different, different fuel yeah. makes us better as a machine, right? Yeah. Or a human entity or a biological structure. So that in its broadest definition is what uh, metabolic flexibility is. <laughs> what lies underneath that is a bunch of different nuance. So let me scratch one layer uh, beyond that for a second. So, you know, we're, we're fraught with sound bites in our industry, right? And one of the sound bites is don't do aerobic exercise because it kills our gains. Yeah. Right. And, and what that's driven into is, and that's, it is correct, but it's also, it's out of context. Yeah. Right. So that statement is factually correct, but it's, not, it, it, it's there's no context to it. So, if we're going to do aerobic exercise, it's going to interfere with a signaling pathway that makes us grow. Yeah. But there's a timestamp to that too, right? Like, you know, like if we're doing concurrent training and you're saying, okay, well, let's wait six or seven or eight hours before we do a cardio. Well, then you're, you're pretty safe at that point. Like, mm -hmm. There's not a lot of interference that happens after that point. Right. So yeah. the idea of just performance, like if we just put our performance hat on is concurrent training, you want to separate them with enough time in between, so you basically have no interference, right? So you can maximize your gains. Part of the health, because we're a health and home human performance company, mm -hmm. part of the health expression would be, why wouldn't you want interference? Because if you had interference, what would your body have to do? It would have to adapt to that. Yeah. Like there's interference, hey body, now what? You gotta adapt, Yeah. because life is interference, right? <laughs> That's all it is, right? And there's competing interests of chemistry, like there's all sorts of different things, right? Yeah. So the health part of that discussion would be, why wouldn't you at a phase of your training want interference? Mm -hmm. Like get it and then get your body to have to deal with it because that makes you unbreakable. Yeah. Right. So let's back up. So if aerobic exercise kills your gains, then unfortunately what comes of that sound bite is what, Adam? Well, no one never does any cardio. Yeah. Right or aerobic efforts, right? Because it's going to kill your gains. Well, that doesn't sound right because, you know, uh, recovery largely is about oxygen, and if I can increase my capacity to deliver, uh, transport, deliver, and utilize oxygen in the body, well, that's a pretty good deal. 
-hmm. And that's going to be really expressed in aerobic means. Right. And so I kind of want to do that. Then there's this idea that, well, you never want to burn proteins as fuel because that's the performance hat. But if you put your health hat on, you'd say, well, why not? They'd say, because you're killing your gains. And you'd say, really? Like going through oxidative transamination and deamination, which is basically proteins into the Krebs cycle, mm -hmm. to the degree that you're burning proteins or burning your muscle is not that great. However, expressing oxidative transamination and deamination with all of the catalyzing enzymes that require that to enter the Krebs cycle is awesome. Why? Because that makes a person ready for that fuel source and more physiologically ready for any perturbation, yeah. which means they're ready for any stressor because nothing's going to phase them. They can burn proteins when needed. They can burn fat because they've expressed that. And I would argue that what you lose, the little bit that you burn in terms of muscle, you capture in more readiness so that you yeah. can actually challenge the system more and stress it more and make better gains. Does that make logical sense? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that, that to me is like, why are you worried about that, yeah. right? Because if you're a healthy system that is ready, then you can stress it and then you can recover, stress it again, recover. And that is where you make you know, your long-term gains because you're equally indexing towards high performance or human performance and health. And that's what we're looking at all the time. It's we're an applied health and human performance company, right? So that's what we're looking at all the time. Yeah. And so yeah. with that metabolic flexibility, we have a 4Q for it. Okay. And, you know, that, that 4Q speaks to the same idea. So think about the same in your mind's eye, think about an, a y-axis and an x-axis again. But this time it's not a, a plus, uh, not a plus sign. It's more of a cross. So we take that x-axis and we move it up. And as you might tell already, as we move it up, that's relative to anaerobic threshold or ventilatory threshold, right? It's going to be higher up for most folks. It's going to be higher up as a percent of their heart rate, mm -hmm. right? Relative to max in terms of when they cross the threshold. And that threshold for us, it's the point at which we're predominantly utilizing sugars as fuel and not other things. Like we're not really going into the, the Krebs citric acid cycling. Yeah just more immediate fuels through glycolysis. So if we're looking at that, cool, that's our x-axis. That's the dividing line between over threshold and under threshold. So if we look at the y-axis for a second, the up and down, that is basically intensity. As mm -hmm. a, even say as a measure of heart rate, if you want, right? It's intensity. There's high intensity on the top and there's sub-maximal or low intensity as we go down. Yeah. So that is your y-axis right here. Your x-axis is on the left, you got steady state, and on the right, you get interval. And we don't necessarily mean steady state and interval as in time, like, oh, I took a break and I, the stopwatch came on again. That's a time interval. Mm -hmm. We're talking about a physiological steady state or a physiological interval, meaning you got to see some sort of change in physiology. If you don't, it's steady state. And if you do, it's interval. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay, so if we have those two things in our mind's eye, we got high intensity and submaximal intensity. We got steady state and we got interval. All right, so let's plot our quadrants now. The lower left quadrant is submaximal intensity, steady state, which we call SIS, S-I-S-S, submaximal intensity, steady state, S-I-S-S. And SIS would be, you know, LSD training, right? It'd be aerobic training. And what does that do? It increases hemoglobin, increases myoglobin. It expresses PGC1 alpha, PGC4 alpha, AMPK. 
all of these things are aerobic things that add to longevity and recovery, right? As well as just better aerobic processes because I can just, you know, be a better aerobic being. Now, there's a point of overdose there, right? And we've seen a lot with high-level uh, endurance athletes. So there's too much of a good thing. But, you know, one could argue that there's a lot of good benefit to that quadrant, right? Just like you know, before Q, neuromechanical, we just, there's benefits to each quadrant. Yeah. So there's SISS, there's benefit to there. If we move over one quadrant to the lower right, we'd say that is submaximal intensity interval training, SIIT. And so that's submaximal, but there's a physiological interval. So it comes up and down in terms of intensity, but always below threshold. Mm-hmm. So what we could argue is that's activities, an example of would be activities of daily living, right? Activities of daily living typically are submax and they're undulating, right? You change your, if you're gardening or doing chores, your heart, it goes up a little bit and then it comes down, it goes up a little bit, but it never really crosses. You never induce acidosis when you're doing gardening or or you know, navigating your day with chores. Um, so that's SIIT. What's the value of that, right? NEAT, right? Non-exercise activity thermogenesis and everything that goes with that in terms of health outcomes, yeah. right? Every, you know, every comorbidity is gonna be influenced in a positive way by increasing you know, activities of daily living, okay. right? And so SIIT is another good one for longevity. Right, never been studied in, in performance, but it is the most important in terms of health. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right, so that thing there is the health one. Then you go up a quadrant, so the upper right hand quadrant is high intensity interval training. And so, us that would be true physiological recovery, not just a time like oh, 15 seconds to go again. And for that, as we know, it's a one to four or one to six ratio between work and rest. If you're looking at metabolic recovery or neural uh, uh, or nervous system recovery, so metabolic recovery typically one to four. So if I do something all out for you know 20 or 30 seconds, I'm going to take you know somewhere around two minutes to get my substrate or my energy systems back. I can yeah. get even a half back in about you know what is that 60 seconds or so, but I might take another minute to get the last bit back, and then I can create critical power again. And go mm-hmm. right up to red red line, critical power, and then a recover for four minutes, and then I do it again. An example is this: an Olympic weightlifter, right, will do let's say near max loads, not max, but they might do one, two, or three hang snatches, high high intensity. Yeah. Then they drop the bar and they talk to their coach for the next five minutes or six minutes while they chalk their hands. We would argue that is awesome hit training. Because mm-hmm. that is hit training. They're not going to do it again in 30 seconds because they're doing an EMOM, right? It's not that. It's not designed to be that. That's hit training. Why are they taking that much recovery and chalking their hands? Because they need full recovery again to go to critical power again. Because critical power for them is the biggest determinant of success. So I would argue that hit training is a lost art nowadays because it's replaced with what we're going to call his training, which mm-hmm. is the upper left quadrant high intensity, steady state. Now, let me time out there. Some of the listeners are going to say, wait a minute, Michelle, you cannot be high intensity and steady state. It's impossible. And you're right. For long periods of time, you can't. But for short bouts, you can. And for functional, uh, high intensity functional training, you can if you undulate upper and lower body because you're getting um, autocrine and localized fatigue that can be modulated upper and lower. So there is a way to actually get more high intensity for longer 
and some studies up to 12 minutes by undulating certain things. And I yeah. mean over threshold for 12 minutes, right? Which doesn't make sense to our exercise physiology hats, right? Because you'd say, you know, you're, you can't buffer fatigue that fast and your OBLA is being, you know, expressed. You can't do all those things, right? Yeah. But you can in certain contexts. So high intensity, steady state. Let me define that. High intensity is over threshold. Steady state means your body does not have enough recovery to get back to a different level of physiology. Therefore, your, your physiology is more steady state. So an example of this would be everything that was being done in high intensity exercise right now. EMOMs, AMRAPs, ASAPs, Tabatas. These are all, in our view, HIS. And HIS training is awesome. And it also has consequence, right? Yeah. So your CrossFit community, as you mentioned before, to a large degree is expressing HIS. Now, what is a byproduct of a lot of HISS when recovery is not there or it's not there long enough is a steady state physiology, which means I'm now producing and accumulating fatigue. That fatigue is uh, lactic acid dissociating into a hydrogen and a lactate anion and ion, right? So a hydrogen ion plus charge and a lactate anion, negative charge, yeah. it, what's being produced because it dissociates in water and we're mostly water. So lactate can be reused through gluconeogenesis in the liver. And hydrogen ion is the one that is typically the culprit, unless there's an adaptive process like a Himalayan, which we won't get into today. <laughs> but they can use hydrogen as a fuel, which is weird. But hydrogen ion competes with calcium at troponin. It inhibits muscle contraction, and that's the fatigue, right? Mm -hmm. So we either have to buffer it, efflux it, or deal with it somehow. But as it accumulates and as we get acidosis, growth hormones are now produced from glands in the body because of that acidosis. Then their first messengers in the blood, they bind to a receptor. They send a second messenger into the cell to make that cell grow. No wonder it's popular nowadays because, yeah. you know, if you look at the CrossFit community, if you look at the high intensity community at large, they're all jacked. Yep. And so they're thinking, great, I want that too. Fantastic. The, the consequence, though, is more insidious, right? It may be more immediate long-term, right? It may not be right away. Um, so that intermediate and long-term could echo itself. And then there's also the idea of expressing uh, intensity long-term, which is, you know, you're burning your engine hot all the time. Your engine's going to wear out. And that is through what's called mTOR. And mTOR is a, a pathway, a growth pathway. And if we express that a lot... Uh, it's, it's linked to a decreased lifespan. <laughs> so now again, we've got our health and human performance hat. The human performance hat would say, that makes me bigger, stronger, fast me. Like, give me three of those, right? Or give me a lot of dose of that his stuff. And okay, cool. That's the human performance side. But the health side would say, you don't want that. Right? Yeah. You don't want that too much because too much of that creates autophagy and it creates protein turnover. And it's linked with a decreased lifespan. Yeah. So what do you want? Right. And then it's a matter of not saying yes or no, like that's bad and that's good. It's like, no, I do that too, but I just monitor the dose and I look at the four quadrants of the metabolic four Q. And then I ask myself, what kind of metabolic flexibility do I want relative to my goal and my physiological readiness? Yeah. So when you're looking at that, um, is it specifically the high intensity where you're looking at the protein substrates then coming in and being a part of that? Um, or because, or are you talking about that more with the lower intensity steady state with um, some resistance training? 
it's going to be two things. It's either going to be during the recovery phase of your high intensity stuff, or it's going to be during submaximal stuff. Yeah. Because the only way you can get proteins as fuels is via the Krebs cycle through mm -hmm. oxidative transamination and deamination. Yeah. And that's where you're starting to cleave off, you know, well, fatty, uh, uh, beta oxidation, same thing. Like it needs the Krebs citric acid cycle to do it. Yeah. Which as you know, it's highly aerobic, right? Yeah. So, you know, you're, you're going to get aerobic when you're recovering, uh, or you're going to get aerobic during aerobic exercise. And that's where you get it. And so I understand the fear because everybody's consumed with can't lose my gains yeah. and I can't lose my muscle mass. And I think, you know, the way in which we can approach that should be more measured than that soundbite, in my yeah. opinion, right? Yeah. Because it's more than going on like, yeah, you're going to burn proteins, but you're not, you're not going to be net negative necessarily, right? Mm -hmm. If you're expressing a lot of other things and you're, you know, working on resistance training, you're working on intensity, you have, then you're good. And if you're not necessarily, if you're doing concurrent training with a time gap that's big enough, you're not really going to interfere with the mTOR pathway. Yeah. And so there's ways around that. And it's not, your body is not so rigid that it just utilizes those means. And then there, the consequences are fixed. Meaning I burn my, some protein in the crab, therefore I can never build protein again. Like it doesn't work that way. Yeah. And I think if you have proper nutrition and nutrient timing, the amount of protein going into that cycle versus the amount of protein that your body can then use for, can still use to, uh, you know, repair the tissues, right? Like that's exactly right. You're exactly correct. I mean, that that's a consideration too. And then you've got, you know, cumulative, you know, chronic stress, or chronic inflammation versus acute. Then you've got, you know, just sleep parameters. So you've got your lifestyle parameters as well. Yeah. yeah all of this thing is is stuck in the milieu called biology. <laughs> yeah, and I think there's this, it's inter it's important to know that there's a, there's a lot of people who are they're very fixed on one category, whether it be bodybuilding or it's all functional or it's this or it's that. Uh, and it's the same in cardio. It's the same in flexibility. It's the same in resistance training. It's the same in all of those, those categories. And just understanding that there is merit and a purpose to every single one of those. And it has to be married to the adaptation that you and or your client are looking for and what is needed or most important. So wants versus needs with regards to health versus performance. And I think that's important to. Yeah. I think those perspectives are, are good. And it's, yeah, I, I appreciate you, you know, restating them because it does need restating. You know, there is a person's goals matters, what their value set is matters, mm -hmm. what their readiness physiologically is matters. Um, you know, and then the idea of sustainability, do you want to continue to do what you love to do? Yeah. Great. Yeah. Right. That matters too. Right. So the idea of health and human performance, not health or human performance, because a lot of times we, I think we just naturally, I think we naturally make the mistake of thinking that fitness equals health mm -hmm. and it doesn't right. Our ethos is fitness does not necessarily equal health. And there's a lot of people that have written that athletes are not healthy and you know, there's truth in that statement, right? Not categorical, but there is truth in that statement. There's a lot of athletes that are just not sustainable mm -hmm. and they were bigger, stronger, faster in their twenties and thirties. And how many times have we heard this? And they're broken at 40. Yeah. Well, that's no good, right? Cause now you can't enjoy your life. Like that's terrible, right? So that's always what we look at. Can we modulate between health and human performance and consider both of those? Yeah. And I think with, 
with new trainers, really emphasizing that in, in, the, in the, the initial consult that you have with a client, when you're first talking with them, one of the best things that you can do as a trainer is help them understand, have that 30,000 foot view that looks outside of the immediacy because they're, they're in that environment. They're in, they're living their life, right? Um, they know what they feel and what they want, but being able to take all of the assessments that you've done and be able to kind of tease out, okay, what are the needs of this client and how can I meld together the wants and needs together so that I, um, as you guys do very well is look at both the health and the performance side of things. So uh, I just wanted to wrap up here. So I I have kind of a lightning round um, three questions, which I sent you. And um, I'm I'm always very fascinated with the responses that I get. So um, I'm, I'm ready to write some answers. So let's start with number one, top three books on any topic that you've read fiction, nonfiction, doesn't matter. I'm a, I'm a big uh, nonfiction guy. I'm a big textbook guy and I'm a big, I'm a big uh, like, um, you know, like biography guy. Mm-hmm. So I like to know about, you know, what made an individual who they were. Uh, and, you know, I like text. I like text. I like free, free sending research as well. Although I like textbook because it typically consolidates it into a, a better narrative mm-hmm. than a, here's what we tested. Here's what we got. Although that's cool too. So, you know, I, I very rarely read uh, fiction. It's, mm-hmm. it's, always, it's almost always nonfiction. So, you know, in terms of top three, I don't know. I mean, that, that's a difficult one for me. I would just say that, you know, for me, biographies and, you know, kind of academia or textbooks is really what cranks me out. I will also say this, that when I read, I typically read slow. And that kind of goes contrary to the hey, absorb information fast and fast learning and everything else. And I appreciate that. But to me, it doesn't work. I typically read slow and reflect. And that's my time to really go slow and to turn actually things down. Because what I'm able to keep is far better than trying to assimilate a ton of information and losing, you know, losing it because I'm filling the bucket, but there's 17 holes that are training because <laughs> I'm just losing it on the tail end. I would yeah. rather slow, you know, slow the fill of my bucket and really contemplate and think and then write in my often I'm with a textbook and I'm writing things down or I don't, I don't, I don't like to do technology because I can't write stuff. I can't, I suppose you could like in the margins you've got, but I like to actually write on the margins and put diagrams in. And I know you can do that on tech too, but I just prefer the, the physicality of actually cursively writing it down. Mm -hmm. And, um, so I slow myself down. Those are moments for me where life is fast already. It's like, I'm going to slow this way down and actually slow learn. Yeah. And think and contemplate and ask questions and write, you know, curious statements. And, you know, that's me. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's actually really interesting. I'm, I'm very like the exact same way. I don't know if I could speed myself up to read if I wanted to. So my daughter reads faster than me. <laughs> oh, man. Um, my, my wife will finish a chapter before I finish like a page and a half of a book because I, me, like you, I'm, I'm, I'm a slow reader and I'd like to be able to read faster so I can absorb more information quicker, but the same as you, like, I, I like to take notes. I like to highlight. I like to underline. I like to, um, like, I got a, a notebook to sit beside me as I'm reading a text and, you know, I'll sit there, underline something, and then I'll write some notes about kind of how I would apply that or, or, you know, what that would uh, um, pertain to maybe in a course that we're, we have, or we're designing a new one. So I'm very, very similar with that. The way that I've started to marry, cause I've read how to, um, I guess, watch some videos about how to read faster. 
but you're just skimming. Like you're not, you're not pulling in any information. So for something that's fiction, that's great. Yeah, it is. Yeah. But for something that's non, that's not a, that's not a great way to go about doing that. So something that I've actually done is if it's available on something like audible or something else, I'll actually purchase it there. I'll have the physical text and I'll play it like, because audibly I'm really good at learning, taking notes as somebody's going and I can pause it underline where I'm at. And I follow along with the words because it can talk faster than I can read. I like that. I like that a lot. Yeah. Um, all right. So top three mentors um, in your journey this far. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm like a politician. I'm vague here. I, <laughs> I like, well, here's the thing. I, I try to seek, like I try to seek lessons in a lot of things. That's just me. Right. Yeah. So I always look at individuals or experiences as being teachers or teaching moments. Right. So, you know, for me, mentors are teachers and I'm thinking, well, what are the top three? That's a good question. But how do I answer that question? Cause in certain contests, I look at my dog who's laying beside me right now and he's taught me more than most humans in, in certain ways. Right. And then having a daughter as a father has taught me certain way, certain things that I couldn't have learned anywhere else. Like even, even communicating to my daughter who's in going just into grade four now mm-hmm. about, you know, just um, navigating, you know, being a girl and, 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 and then being a woman, right? I'm, I don't have experience to that, but having her interact with me and having a father begin to appreciate that to a whole new level, mm-hmm. right? And she's, you know, going in, she's going to be 10, she'll be 12 and 14 soon, and she'll have her physiology change, right? And, and what, you know, even in that experience, like, and talking to her about a menstrual cycle and what that actually is. And, and I've engaged in that conversation with her in a very clear, um, very comfortable way. Yeah. And I'll tell you what, that has taught me more about interacting with youngsters than anything else, because it wasn't what I said. Mm-hmm. It was how I said it. In other words, if dad's comfortable with this, maybe I can be comfortable with it too. Yeah. And if dad's speaking directly to the questions I am asking him and asking and answering directly right? Then maybe I'm okay with this. Mm -hmm. And that's been a valuable lesson to me because in in looking at this, you know, often it's like, well, we don't want to talk about those types of things, whether it's, you know, sex or let's say periods or anything like that. And then when, where do they learn it on the schoolyard? Right. And it's like, well, you know, I don't know if that's better. So I remember distinctly, she was in the backseat of the car two years ago, she was eight, right? So imagine an eight-year-old child, right? And she goes, dad, what's the difference between boys and girls? And I'm thinking, hey, today's the day we're going to have this talk, right? I'm like, <laughs> we're in the friend's driving, right? And so I, I gave, you know, I promised myself whatever question she asked, I would give her a direct answer. So yeah. she asked, you know, she said, I've heard about a period. And I said, well, you've got, you know, a uterus, which is a sac in your stomach that boys don't have. Mm-hmm. And I said, that will establish a lining, which is this, you know, this lining, this epithelial lining. And she goes, okay. And it will shed every 28 days and it'll come out of your vagina as blood. Now, how direct of an answer is that to a direct question? It Mm -hmm. is super direct. And I said, and every time she asked a follow-up question, I'd say, Brooke, that's an awesome question. Here's the answer. Yeah. And that's an awesome question. Here's the answer. So now we're into that process, Adam. Yeah. Thinking, wow, she's still asking questions and I'm answering everyone. Yeah. She hugs me and she said, dad, can I, shouldn't I be talking to mom about this? I'm like, probably because she has experience. But I said, anytime you want to talk to dad, I'm, I'm happy to engage in that discussion. Yeah. And she said, I want to talk to you about it again. 
I said, anytime. And she goes, I love you so much. And, and she was comfortable with this. And, mm-hmm. and from that discussion back two years ago, we have a whole game plan. Like yeah. she knows exactly what she's going to be doing when she gets to school and she has her period. Yeah. So, you know, not to get off topic, but that's been a teaching moment for me. Yeah. Right. And that's been a valuable teacher for me. So just, I look for those opportunities in life. Yeah. Yeah. The experience of walking through it and, and irrespective of who it is. And um, like, I, I don't have kids. Um, I, I actually had a podcast with Farrell Hrusko. I know, you know, from kind of the, the idea scene and being in San Diego where she is. Um, we had a discussion about that and, and having those conversations all about women in training and, and those different discussions that occur at different points. But um, I love the, the idea of just being direct. Oftentimes, parents will defer to the parent who knows more about that right so as a male you have your daughter come and ask you that often you're like oh that's probably a conversation you should go have with your mother right or you talk childish and baby talk and when you do you do is you subvert the the power with which you can give children you can empower them yeah right because they'll see right through that like if i'm skirting the issue and i'm uncomfortable all they're going to see is dad's uncomfortable therefore i should be uncomfortable yeah. Right, which does not help them. Yeah. And with the way you, you answer questions and, um, and really just confirm that the question was a good question, you're fostering as your company, that you're fostering that curiosity and, and wanting to ask questions and actually get good answers. Every time. Yeah. That's Great. awesome. All right. So um, what would uh, Michelle of today tell uh, 20-year-old Michelle? Well, since I'm 25 right now, that'd be five-year-old Michelle. <laughs> uh, but at, uh, yeah, so if, so that would be kind of, you know, later 20s for me, right? Um, 20 years ago. So, you know, I've moved from Alberta, Canada to San Diego, California, and I was always enamored with water, always have been and still am. And I'm fortunate enough to love I'm fortunate enough to live about two blocks away from the ocean, which is just that way. Yeah. And uh, here in San Diego, good waves, good surf. Right. And so as soon as I got here, I, I was, you know, 30, what was I 33 at the time when I moved down here. And, you know, I was the guy that was learning surfing real, you know, late in life. And that's a, you know, it's a pretty slow learning curve, right? It takes a while. (laughs) And, um, but I was happy on my board and, you know, I, I took a lot of the philosophy of, just surfing in general. So I'm going to, I'm going to answer that good question by using a surfing analogy, which is really about what do surfers do? Like if you look at surfing in general, it doesn't come when you want it, right? Mm -hmm. The waves just don't come when you, they just come when they come. And so it requires patience, right? Like you have to wait for the swell to hit before you go out there. And often what happens is, and that's a, that's a metaphor for life. So in one of the senses, I'd say, Michelle, you got to wait for it. Like, and, and that's easy to say. And it's cliche to say, like, I'm saying this and everybody's saying, I got it. Yeah. Wait for it. But internalize that. Like you got to wait for it. Yeah. Right. And sometimes waiting for it could be five years, 10 years. Right. And a lot of times, you know, people give up right before. Right. And so are you prepared to wait for it? And I don't mean wait like in a day. Mm -hmm. I mean, five years are you ready you know if you're prepared to lean into your craft for 10 years for 15 years for five years whatever that is that process something in your in your barometer like is that calibrated in that time code or is it i'm gonna wait for three months and if i don't get success i'm out of here yeah 
that life doesn't necessarily operate that way. Mm-hmm. Right. And so patience is a, something that in the immediacy of, you know, gratifications that are immediate in our world now is a lost art. So patient, like true patience, yeah. like things will come in their own time. Yeah. So I would have told myself, and that would be a piece of advice I would have told myself back then related to the surfing experience. The other thing that's interesting about surfing is that if ever you've done it, you go out there and if you're in the impact zone, like the sea doesn't want you in there. So the waves are just like smacking you to shore and you're fighting your way through the churn of the water and you're fighting, fighting, fighting. And what's interesting is it could be 20 feet or, you know, whatever that is, like three meters, the distance between fighting. And if you get past that last wave, it's like so calm and so relaxed. And the distance is like 10, 20 feet. Yeah. And the, the point of like churn to the point of like, ah, I'm just going to relax on my board and just let the way that swell kind of rock me to sleep. The, the difference is like so minute, right? Mm-hmm. If you're caught inside versus if you make it past that outside set, right? So that's another metaphor for life is that sometimes the difference between, you know, feeling a flow and chaos could be closer than you think, which means sometimes just lean into it a little bit more. Fight yeah. your way past it and you'll be at this, this point of rhythm, which, we, which is the swell, as opposed to the chaos and the churn of the whitewash. And that distance is not that far, right, when you look at it. And it's, yeah. it's amazing the difference between the churn and the calmness of, of the swell. And so that's another metaphor that surfing would teach me that I could, you know, say to my, you know, my, my former self, right? And then the other one too is a lot of times surfers will just look at waves. They'll just go in. I remember being in in the North Shore of Hawaii uh, at Bonsai Pipeline, right? Mm -hmm. And the first thing you notice is that there's massive waves, like massive waves dumping pretty close to shore. And every time they dump, you can feel the the earth shake underneath you. It's really weird. (laughs) And they're big waves, like 20 footers is bam, bombing down. And you see surfers not that far away from you. The next thing you notice is that beautiful, pristine beach, North, you know, North Shore, Hawaii, right? Oahu. Beautiful, pristine beach, zero people laying on the beach, right? <laughs> Nobody's laying on the beach. Like everybody is, and that might be 300 people standing on the beach, looking at the ocean. Mm-hmm. And that's another thing that surfing taught me is to be mindful to take into something. Like just, like we talked about mindful reading, just slowing down. Can you just slow down? And again, that's easy to say, like, just be mindful. It almost, it almost becomes cliche, right? But mindfulness is about bringing attention towards intention, yeah. right? So if you look at and unpack that, you can be mindful as you eat your chocolate cake. Like this is the best bite of deliciousness I've ever had, whatever, right? Whatever you are bringing attention towards and your intention towards whatever it is, that's mindfulness. Yeah. Right? So if, if folks are looking at the wave, they're not just like, that's a cool wave. They're like looking at the wave. Mm-hmm. And they're feeling it and they're looking at the surfers in the wave and they are to the point where they're not even laying down. They're mindful about that experience. Yeah. So, you know, going through the experience of life is something that when we're young, we don't, I think, have a calibrated thought towards. Like we're just yeah. going through the motions and I want to get to the next thing. I want to achieve my next thing. I'm looking ahead. And that's cool. There's nothing wrong with that. But taking moments to be mindful about, let me just, you know, be in this moment right now and appreciate it for what it is. And that could be petting the dog. It could be playing with your kids. I could be eating your favorite dessert. It could be whatever you want to do. Yeah. Uh, but I think that to me is, is, you know, something that resonates with me more now. Yeah. Yeah. It's awesome. 
I didn't ask for three, but that's like, that's awesome that all of those yeah, learned from surfing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's good. Uh, no, I love that too, because like, yeah, when you look at children to adolescence to, you know, late teens, early adulthood, right? There's always something to look for. There's always something next. And I agree, there's this point in life where you're like, all right, um, hmm, what, like, what's, what's next after this? Let's enjoy now, right? Like, you know, when you're young, you're just looking to go to, you want to get to school, you want to walk, you want to do all those things, you want to play sports, and everything's like, as you said, it's, it's um, immediacy, it's, it's wanting that instant gratification, and everything's like, I want to do what my older sibling's doing, or what my parents are doing, and then, or my friends are doing. And then you get into university. It's like, I, I just want to finish university to get a job. And then once you get a job, I just want to get a job so I can get a house and then have a family. And then it's step, 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 step. And then you get to a point. It's like, okay, you know, there's still steps that you can take. There's still things that you can do, yeah. but it's not like this set thing. It's almost like it re now requires planning and patience and getting through, you know, the, that storm before the calm that you talked about, right. Getting through that whitewash and then um, yeah, just kind of settling and, and slowing everything down. And I think that's one thing for me, that would be one big thing that I would tell 20 year old self as well is just like, just take it easy. Like it's going to come when it comes. It's, it's like, everything is about time. You won't get this back. Cause you look back and like those years, younger years went by so fast. And you're like, where did all this time go? I tell everybody, I'm like, I would go back to going, like, I would go back to high school and do all high school again. I would go back to university and do all university again because I felt like it went by way too fast. Right. But, yeah. Well, uh, I was gonna say, I have, I don't have any more space to write anything. You saw me kind of like go, I'm on like the margins of sheets of paper here trying to write notes. So I, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on. And uh, really sharing with uh, myself and the audience, like I, I learned a lot. So I know that the audience will also learn a lot as well. Um, but before we head out, can you just, uh, like I know you have the applied health and human performance uh, specialists that you just launched recently uh, virtually. So can you just tell us about, a bit about that and what other stuff that you have kind of uh, come into the pipelines? Yeah. So, you know, as, as I said, IOM is really an applied health and human performance company. So we, we point that at fitness, we point that at healthcare, and we point that at performance. And by performance, we might be an elite performance or we might be an executive performance, right? Yeah. So any type of sustained high level of outcome. Uh, healthcare, we're not on the medical side. We are on the prevention side of the ledger, but that's healthcare for us. So we point those strategies uh, in that, in that uh, domain as well. And then fitness and health would be the other one. So uh, what we've done as of late is we put a credentialing together on health and human performance. And so what it is, as you mentioned, is, is an AHHPS, right? An Applied Health and Human Performance Specialist. And it's a leveling course, but we, we just launched level one two weeks ago, mm. and it's online. And what was interesting about that real quick is we had a bunch of folks lean in. We had 319 students reach uh, in our first wave. Yeah. Uh, and what was interesting about that group is that you know, often they said, Michelle, what's interesting is as the, as the industry is speaking about dumbbells and sets, you're talking about health, sustainability, and, you know, outcomes of performance, which to, to that person was just on a different level, not a better level, just on a different level. Yeah. And so what we found is that there is a huge appetite for knowledge 
and programming experience around both health and human performance because they don't necessarily mesh all the time. Mm -hmm. And so that dropped. We're doing another wave here right away, uh, wave, wave two. And then that'll matriculate into a level two and a level three. Uh, but if for those that want information on that, on the AWHPS program, uh, they can go to www.instituteofmotion.com. And on that page, you can see all the information. Yeah. And so uh, it's a, the level one is a 12 week curriculum and they get access to our LMS, our learning management system, which is week by week. And then they get access to our program builder, which is not a workout builder, it's a program builder. So in that, implicit within that, they'll be able to design programs that have all three, four Q models in it, right? Mm -hmm. So they're gonna start to develop programs and awesome. then save those programs as their own and you know, uh, uh, distribute those programs, coach those programs, sell those programs to various different audiences that they wanna to touch. Awesome. So that, that's the one piece. And then uh, the, the product piece, if they go to viper.com, V-I-P-R.com, uh, there you can learn all things about Viper, which is our, our product that is mm -hmm. really about, you know, load-based, resistance-based and movement-based uh, uh, elements, right? So it's, it's, it harkens back to the farm kid analogy. It's yeah. like taking the farm kid style of training in the gym. Yeah. Yeah, if you haven't, uh, for those listening, if you haven't uh, either been to a conference and experienced the Viper or been to either a, a gym, a studio, or even watched a video about how to use the Viper, there's a lot of stuff. You guys have a lot of great videos online. Um, I know Jan's got his, he's got a lot of stuff he does with Viper and just body weight movements as well. And then uh, you guys have an app too, correct? We do, yeah. So if you go into platform by IOM on the App Store or, or, uh, uh, Google play, then yeah, you can find it there and you can download it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but an awesome tool, uh, awesome information. So once again, thanks again for coming on. Um, I had a great time and, uh, I look forward to chatting again. Yeah. Listen, Adam, I appreciate you taking the time to, you know, investigate these, these discussions with various different individuals and engaging, uh, in a substantive way, with a good spirit and, you know, and, and a good perspective on things. And I think that that begins to tilt a little bit of how we discuss and how we share best practices. And, you know, you're a multiplier for that. So, you know, I think we appreciate that as an industry because, you know, having that spirit with which you engage and want to expose information out there allows us to help more folks. And so, you know, that is a multiplier that is needed. So we appreciate you for that too. Well, thanks. I'm, I'm really happy to do it. We'll talk soon. You bet. State of the Industry Podcast. I'll be back. <laughs>